Taking Stock. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstocknt. Now, coming up on today's programme, as we face the busy end of year shopping period and with supply chains already under significant strain, I'll be getting both the domestic and the international perspective on what the supply difficulties might mean for Irish consumers this Christmas. We'll also be taking a close look at what the global media trends for 2022 are likely to be. And the Great Resignation, while there's evidence of it in the US and the UK, has there been a mass exodus of employees here in Ireland too? But first up, over the course of the last 20 months, the pandemic has revealed a lot about global imports and exports and how they operate. It's brought into sharp focus that as a small open economy cut off from Europe geographically, Ireland can be impacted very quickly by supply disruption. Joining me to discuss these issues today are Eugene Drennan, who is president of the Irish Road Haulage Association, and Simon McKeever, who's CEO of the Irish Exporters Association. Eugene, Simon, you're both very welcome to News Talk today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy. Eugene, I might start off with you, uh, if I can. Yeah. Your industry is absolutely integral to keeping all of the cogs in the wheels turning in both uh, import and export markets. And we've seen in recent months that the supply chain is a very finely tuned instrument, uh, which has been suffering from a confluence of issues that have all come together, if you like, to create a perfect storm of sorts. But could you just talk to us about some of the main issues that Irish hauliers have had to deal with during the pandemic? Uh, the... We have been challenged in lots of ways, really, in the last uh, year and a half or so. Um, and in the supply line, I suppose the biggest of all was COVID, the onset of COVID and dealing with that. Uh, the first item on the agenda there was how we went about our business, keeping our drivers safe, uh, keeping the flow going, and to match both and hopefully be able to do both. And luckily, through our drivers, which we must acknowledge at all times, and I suppose just the tough resilience of Irish hauliers uh, we got going at and we managed to go into the worst of places if you recall uh, sort of the influx of the COVID coming in February uh, or just over a year ago just a year and a half ago uh, after Cheltenham and people were coming back from skiing and next thing we got hit and Italy became a red zone and we would have quite a bit of product going to Italy export Italy every week but the drivers kept going and the hauliers kept going. And then, with the onset of that, we did seek and we looked for and fought hard to get negotiations going and talk to different people to get direct ferries, uh, a better supply, better capacity to Ireland on the ferries to the continent because of the onset of Brexit at the same time. And we were very lucky that uh, two or three new companies came into the market. Uh, they, they brought uh, quite a bit of extra shipping and capacity and that supply line has held well, uh, though now in winter time, it is a little challenged because of the factor of winter time uh, storms, um, and also that some ships go for retrofitting and maintenance at this time and it's downtime. But. For the most part, we're just keeping that going, but it is keeping going reasonably well. I suppose the new routes are, are to be welcomed, as you say, and particularly the new connections with France and the like. Um, but as you say, they're they're still open to the vagaries of weather and that can be an issue. Can I just take you, Eugene, for, for a sec- second to look at the disruption that we saw recently um, over in the UK, which impacted very severely on consumer access to fuel at petrol pumps um, and how disruptive that was. People thought there was a 
lack of fuel supply, but it was actually a lack of hauliers, which which led to all of that disruption. Do we have a shortage of drivers here too in Ireland? And if so, what, if anything, are the government doing to help that situation? Yes. we The disruption in the UK recently highlighted just how easy it is to up, upset the supply line. And it highlighted one other thing to the UK, that of the previous 10 or 15 years, they really depended on either foreign hauling companies coming in out of the country or a supply of people, usually from the eastern side of Europe, but from lower economies, lower cost-based economies, to keep their business going. And when both of those dried up with the onset of Brexit, plus the memory of just last Christmas, what uh, England did to the drivers of Europe with the holdups in Dover and on the east coast of England, uh, 20 or 30,000 drivers had up. Some of them never saw Christmas at home. It was the most inhuman of acts. And that came back to haunt them during the year in their supply. And they, they had a lack of drivers. Uh, we, it's, a, it's a global problem now. Uh, lack of, shortage of drivers is a global problem. And we, like the rest of the countries, are just about getting by. We really have a shortage. And we have been at pains and negotiations with the uh, General Minister for Logistics Hildegard Nocton, and we saw a little opening up of the scheme for allowing people to come in under permit, uh, and we would have become an essential user under the general terms of that uh, recently. Howsoever, though that end has uh, liberalised and opened up a little bit, Mandy, uh, there is a lack of urgency and a lack of movement, or less movement, on the side of two or three other departments who are responsible for getting uh, these people in here, uh, having them properly licensed, having their paperwork correctly. And that, with the working remotely and all the slowness of COVID, can take anything from three to eight months. Hmm. So it's next to impossible, you know, opening up one channel, but when it isn't finalised and all the links to carrying out the act to make sure the driver gets here safely, gets set up, then it's not really of huge use to us. Yeah, so the recruitment process itself can actually take a long, long time. And when you're competing, yeah. I suppose, with other countries to find those drivers and get them in, yeah. it, it can be another challenge. We'll come back. Well, our system, Andy, if I could just find yeah, out, sure. our system is further cumbersome because we have to advertise it before they come. Then we have to offer them the job. It's only then the, we research them and they come in here and present them as the candidates come. Then an agency of the state goes to check out their credentials from their home country. They're coming from countries where that may be very slow. And even though we would have got the guard of vetting uh, version of that country, then the state agency has to do exactly the same. They then issue a card uh, from one section of it, but the driving license section doesn't accept or won't issue it. And it goes on and on. Whereas in Australia, they give the candidate, once the, the employer is happy with the status, of the person and that they may be able to drive or check them for driving. That has to be done. We can't compromise safety. But in either Australia or New Zealand, I forget which one, they issue an immediate 186-day card, typically permit card, and the candidate can start work. And it's far more streamlined than you can get to work and, and keep your business. 
Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Eugene Drennan, who's president of the Irish Road Haulage Association, and to Simon McKeever, who's CEO of the Irish Exporters Association. Simon, I might bring you in here, if, if you don't mind. Um, you represent the Irish Exporters Association, and the CSO released some figures this week that showed there's some shifting around uh, that's quite significant in terms of our export patterns. Can you just give us a general overview about what's happening to exports at the moment? Sure, certainly. Well, look, our in general, our exports remain very strong, um, but you can see certain things changing and it goes back to really what's happening within our supply chain. So we, we still are, you know, doing a fair bit of exporting to the UK, despite the difficulties in that. We are exporting and importing a good bit more between um, Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, and there is some distortion in, in that when when uh, when you look at it, because uh, last year there was a, a realignment within the whole figures within the UK and the CSO realised that they had actually uh, underestimated the amount of trade that was been done with the Northern Ireland. So it's a very hot topic for Boris Johnson at mm-hmm. the moment. But it's proportionality. Uh, and actually, when you actually look at the figures, it doesn't reflect the high percentages that he's talking about. So so what we're seeing it reflects what actually Eugene was saying as well, in that we are trading more with the European Union. Um, we are trading a little bit less with the UK in general. Um, when you when you look across the, the the European Union, we are trading more with most countries within the European Union, but trading less with Belgium, believe it or not. And I think sitting in that figure has probably got something to do with our pharma exports, because a lot of pharma exports go through Belgium. Um, so there's a big drop in that. Um, and then there, so there's probably some rerouting going directly into the United States. So we we have seen and companies are saying to us because they've had a lot more difficulty getting items out of the UK that they are sourcing them within the European Union. So we, we have seen um, a shift in our supply chains um, and it's it's probably going to be a trend that continues over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I, I actually think you're going to see a more regionalization of uh, supply chains around the world. And, and Ireland will probably move to a more um, localized. And I, when I say localized, I mean within the European, within the EMEA region, where we will be probably trading a lot more with that region than, than we have in the past and probably sourcing less out of the Far East as time goes on. Uh, and that's problems that we've seen with supply chains uh, over the over the last 18 months which has been exacerbated by by covid-19 so you know the shipping capacity dropping the lack of containers that already existed uh, and then suddenly when different economies have opened back up this huge demand particularly for on the uh, on the inbound side so you know, the sourcing of raw materials to make things is a global phenomenon around the world. And because different countries have seen it at different times, so China opening up first, the United States opening up next, uh, the two biggest kind of um, markets in the world, as they have opened up, they've hoovered up all the resources, they've hoovered up all the shipping capacity, hoovered up all the container capacity, to the extent of which that there has been log jams in their ports, which are well documented. And Indeed, you know, some of our major European ports are quite full as well. So you're seeing this massive um, capacity constraint on the system at the moment, which is probably going to go on for another 18 months or so before that works its way through. 
Yeah, I think we've all kind of come to realise that the global supply chain depends on a very complex network uh, of linkages and they depend on everything happening at the right time in order to keep things running smoothly. I see in Los Angeles they have uh, decided to open their ports 24-7. Is there anything similar planned for here in Dublin? And not that I am aware of, um, and I, I don't think it's absolutely necessary at the moment either. Um, our, our system, uh, again, echoing what um, Yuji was saying, our system is actually working quite well at the moment. Um, those uh, that shipping capacity that was put on directly into Europe, so you know the kind of decision by DFDS to put those routes on, has been a complete game changer. Um, and you know we've been. You know, people in the ports have been saying that they have seen trucks coming in from different parts of Europe that they've never seen since the very start of the year. Uh, and it takes a while for that kind of to all link up because a lot of our trade was 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 kind of or a lot of our transportation was kind of UK, almost UK based. Uh, and it was the nature of the way that the uh, the freight actually worked. So it is has taken a while to kind of get that conjoined back up through Europe. But I, I do believe that you will see more and more um, trade being done and more routing through um, through the European Union directly. Uh, that's the way we're heading. It's it is becoming you know it's still very difficult to to trade with the UK. Um, and you know, I think they're in for a, a big surprise when they when when things really begin to ramp up from their own control point next year. Uh, which will have knock-on effects for us, by the way. Yeah, you mentioned just a few moments ago, Simon, that shipping containers are also in short supply. So even if we're able to export items, we might not actually be able to have the containers to put them in. Does that limiting capacity lead to higher costs? And are there certain types of goods then being prioritised over others? And what will that mean for us in the coming Christmas period? So, so you need to look at both sides. You need to look, to look at the inbound and the outbound side of that. On, on the inbound, there is a, a global constraint on the, the inbound side, i.e. raw materials, for want of a better word, and going into production and that. And that also means items that might be coming in in time for Christmas. So I'll answer your second question first, which is what happens in the run-up to Christmas? Do certain items get dropped? And the way it's been categorized to, to me, and I'd be interested to hear what Eugene has to say on this one, is that if, if it's a container load full of low-value items where the, the importer is potentially not prepared to pay as much as a container full of very high-value items, then those items might get dropped. Um, and, you know, there could be some very cheap plastic plastic related items that are opened up on Christmas Day that might be included in that. Now, we, we've also been told that, um, you know, that there is a, a huge supply of, of, of those kind of items in, in, in Ireland already. So my, my sense is low value items um, may get sacrificed for high value items where people are prepared to pay more money for that particular load. On the export side, because, you know, this question is being asked an awful lot. Are, are, are we at a point where we're going to have difficulty shipping off the island? I don't believe that's the case yet at the moment. Um, and I don't, and certainly our members are not really talking about, um, you know, that they won't be able to ship. So I don't, I, I think we're managing things uh, uh, as we can, despite all the difficulties. It is leading to higher costs, though. Eugene, could I bring you in to, the, to address yeah. the same issue, please? Uh, just one thing I would start differently with, uh, with there is that um, on the Dublin port side and the container opening of the container, container depots, uh, we need them open for, open for somewhat extra time, though. Perhaps we don't need 24-7 like San Francisco, 
or, or less sanitous. But we certainly need them open. And in the past, when Waterford Port, uh, the big uh, ship uh, container port, if a ship was in, it worked. It even worked through the night. There are ships in through the night in Dublin, and all that's missing is the gate man or whoever the logistics in the office. It wouldn't take much, even if you had to book the truck in, to extend the hours by appointment if they're working during the night. And we definitely need an extension because Dublin Port closes at 6, 6.30, 7, 7 p.m., whichever terminal you may happen to be going to. That is too early, and they're trying to condense a bigger volume of freight that's with the opening up into the same time as they had during COVID. And it's leading to log jams, and it's leading to queues and a uh, tough time for drivers. So we certainly need a bit of leniency in Dublin Port. On the points that um, Simon was making about the cheaper items, he's very true indeed. However, I saw something happen recently in that the biggest uh, freight-carrying uh, aircraft in the world has landed in Shannon. I think it's about five times now, maybe it's only four, with items for a very large retail chain here. And that would have uh, low and high value items on board, I am led to believe. That means that the low value items will cost a little bit more this year. All of this adds to cost in the shopping basket. And uh, it has, the shopping basket has gone high enough as it is. So, you know, we must try and alleviate that at all if we can with, with not having any own goals and making sure we keep our, our supply chain as streamlined as we possibly can. On that, Mandy, uh, what Simon sort of referred to there about the the level of freight on the shipping and coming into from Ireland, it has increased substantially into the ports of Northern Ireland. And what that indicates is that we have the unofficial, official or official, unofficial, whichever way you wish to put it, uh, bringing stuff into Northern Ireland to come on to Southern Ireland because mm. of the upset and the where we find ourselves in. And what Lord Frost is arguing, you know, is for a bigger picture in Europe and, uh, today. But I've always argued that items, the first item on the agenda when we hear about uh, coming from the UK now is the European Customs Union Code and making sure that nothing gets into the union that should have a tariff or wouldn't go. The first item we should look to for here is that we're the island off the island. We're on the, on the wrong side of the scrum here. And it causes huge costs if we don't hold our streamlined yes, ability. Yeah. If the goods are for our table, we're not populating the EU with what comes here. If we can simplify how that happens, it will mean a, a relaxing of the cost somewhat, and it will ease up the flow as well. And also, if uh, stuff, it's a non-tariff agreement, but yet there's VAT being charged or there is the tariff being charged, maybe on some items, and in return to the person, or turn to the companies you doing that. But yet, it ties up the capital and ties up a lot of money and makes the process cumbersome. So there is room for us to talk to the UK to streamline the processes, I feel. Well, you, Eugene, we'll probably come back and look at this topic another day, specifically in relation to Brexit and what may happen around Article 16. But for now, it seems that while the specific challenges that we're currently facing about global trade and the networks and the supply chains are temporary, I still think that there are far more fundamental issues which obviously need to be to be addressed in terms of, of our supply and, and particularly in relation to hauliers going forward. Uh, but for now, I'm sorry, we'll have to leave it there. That's Eugene Drennan, President of the Irish Road Hauliers Association and Simon McKeever, CEO of the Irish Exporters Association. Eugene, Simon, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you, Mandy. 
Now, the pandemic has undoubtedly accelerated the globalisation of the marketing industry. So what kind of media trends will advertisers be using to catch our attention in 2022? I'm joined now from New York by Yves Le Breton, who is Director of Global Clients E-Commerce at the Oliver Agency. Yves, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us today on News Talk. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Now, we certainly want to find out your predictions for the trends for 2022. But before we get to that, uh, you're obviously tracking all of the trends and have been during the pandemic. What, if any, shifts are arising from the pandemic and how are consumers connecting now? I think that the, the trend has been towards uh, more mobile, social and decentralized platforms. Uh, humans are essentially uh, very social animals and the, the, the pandemic has taken us apart and kept us away from our normal social interactions and uh, we've taken to social media um, and, and, and mobile platforms to connect with people. So we've seen a lot more activity on mobile uh, and on social, especially uh, amongst uh, an, an older generation, which is uh, which is counterintuitive uh, when we think of mobile. Uh, we think a lot about younger generations, but um, there's a lot of people who, during the pandemic, uh, in the 40, 50, uh, maybe even 60 uh, age range, have taken to, uh, um, to, to to social platforms to interact with people. Yeah, now for businesses who are going to try and, and recover post-pandemic, it's very important to understand the landscape and to stay on top of the developments. But it's also crucial for them to be a, a bit ahead of the curve and to plan and prepare for growth. So what platforms do businesses need to pay particular attention to as they plan for their outreach in 2022? Yeah, so I think that the really important here, again, is anything that's social and particularly user or creator driven not necessarily brand driven as it has been the case in the past. Uh, consumers are very much looking, uh, shoppers are very much looking to hear opinions from their peers, uh, less so than from brands, from top down sort of uh, uh, institutions. So platforms like Snapchat, Instagram, or the traditional uh, ones that have always worked, but some of the new ones that are coming up, uh, TikTok obviously is, is one of the, the, the fastest growing social platforms. Uh, many brands are now experimenting with TikTok to try and figure out how to talk to consumers on that platform because a standard uh, sort of brand message is not going to go very well on the TikTok platform. It has to be something that's more organic, more creator-driven. And then platforms like Roblox as well, which um, is sort of like a, you know the new version of, uh, of of the metaverse, where a lot of people are going on creating environments, uh, and and especially for younger generations, they spend a lot of time on Roblox and it's a great opportunity for brands to introduce themselves to a new audience. Uh, some uh, auto companies have even taken to uh, create uh, immersive worlds in Roblox to try and reach uh, the, this new audience. That's interesting what you say about brand management, because it, it used to be the case that marketeers and advertisers played the most important role in defining what a brand is. So. From what I'm hearing, is it the case that consumers are playing a greater role by their own behavior and data analytics now determine marketing strategies? Absolutely, 100%. I think that there's definitely uh, a desire from shoppers and consumers to get validation on what they are looking for, what they're buying from their peers and not from the traditional sources of information. Uh, there's a sort of a healthy skepticism, I would say, uh, with audiences to, uh, you know, to, 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 to trust and verify, in a way, the messages that the brands are putting out there. And that's why we see, for example, that uh, ratings and reviews are extremely important to validate 
uh, choices that consumers make. They might navigate to a brand page because they might have seen an advertisement or they might have seen, you know, a traditional sort of form of media. But before they actually pull the trigger and before they decide to buy a product, they're very much going to check uh, the feedback from 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 other shoppers like themselves. Uh, hence, you know the, the the traffic that goes to Amazon and other retail platforms, where consumers are looking for opinions uh, from other people like themselves for to validate uh, what they may have heard or what they think about a particular brand. And that means that uh, content is is king again, really, isn't it? Um, it might seem obvious, but uh, it reminds me a little bit of the advertising that happened in the 80s when everyone was buying advertising, but but not everyone was investing in the creative side. And it led, in my view, to, to a lot of wasted advertising because it wasn't compelling. So content has to be really authentic and it has to uh, speak to the consumer directly again, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, all, con- content has always been king. And the most memorable campaigns were always creative driven. When we think back, you know, in the last 10 or 20 years, which are the campaigns that most strike us? They're visual campaigns. They're campaigns that struck a chord in the mind of the consumer. I think the difference today is who produces that content. Mm. In the past, the brands were very much involved in the production of that creative uh, and in that communication. Nowadays, Brands are very much relying on third-party creators, uh, influencers, uh, social, uh, you know, platforms to come up with a with a uh, a campaign um, creative that resonates with the platform and with the type of people who uh, who who go on these platforms. Yeah, Instagram is a great example of that, uh, and if. But I was quite surprised to see some of the figures there that only 4% of influencers actually derive an income from user-generated content. So is there a risk there that the, the bubble is about to burst on that side of, of brand management? I think it's always going to be the case that, you know, there's going to be a small number of uh, creators and influencers who will be able to make a living exclusively out of producing content for these social platforms. And then there's going to be a vast majority of, uh, of creators and influencers who will do this on the side to supplement uh, their income and to um, you know to 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 stay involved with uh, with the community. It's a little bit. I, I see it a little bit like the acting um, sort of world, right? You have a few actors who make a lot of money, uh, but the vast majority of actors are just doing small jobs and and little uh, roles on on different. Uh, um, movies or, or or tv shows and they make a living out of it uh but the ones that everybody focuses on are the ones who pull in the millions of dollars uh, and i think it's the same sort of situation with uh with social media and and, and creators yeah one of the other um areas i wanted to examine was the issue of uh, search ads and in particular the global search engines um I, there may be some repercussions happening with people moving to new places for their search activities could you talk a little bit to me about how the ads have influenced that um that side of of the business in recent years yes so um <laughs> The, the, the normal search ads on Google and Facebook, uh, the, the, the return on investment is decreasing now on, on those platforms. And what we're seeing today is a shift towards uh, advertisements on retail media networks that are taking over um, you know, budgets inside organizations because 
these ads that are placed on the retail media networks like Amazon, for example, uh, it's much easier to calculate the return on investment on those ads because Amazon controls uh, this, this, this walled garden and they can give brands a lot more information about who is seeing the ads, who is converting with these ads, what other brands they are considering when they're shopping around. Whereas before, and with um, you know with Google ads or Facebook ads, it's very difficult to do the attribution that goes along with those ads. Um, and so what what we're seeing in, with many of our clients is that there's a reallocation of funds from traditional um, you know uh, top level Google ads to more specific wall gardens retail media network ads yeah so more attention being paid to sort of bespoke advertising online if if you like yeah an attribution if you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Eve Le Breton about the global trends in global media consumption over the past year and looking ahead to 2022. Uh, Eve, can I just pick up on, on what you were talking about there? Um, is there a growing scepticism about online content now? Are we becoming more discerning? Um, a large proportion of the audience uh, that are being reached by this advertising are actually fake. So ad fraud appears to be an issue for advertisers. But is this the case the world over or is it more of a regional issue? No, it's it's, it's really a worldwide situation. And uh, and I think, you know, th- th- there's always been some level of ad fraud, no matter what the um, uh, no matter what the medium. But there are some new forms of advertisement today where, for example, connected TV, CTV, where the old uh, tools and the old technology that was used to combat fraud just don't apply or need to be modified. And so it's a little bit like, you know, like the far west right now in some uh, areas of the advertising industry where technology needs to catch up with some of these new media uh, um, opportunities. Uh, while still taking into consideration privacy issues, you know, um, uh, which is a big concern. And uh, Oliver is part of the you and Mr. Jones group, for example. We've been um, uh, one of the, the, er- the early investors in uh, the Human Collective, which is a group of um, people in the industry who are trying to find, you know, the, the ways to minimize ad fraud and to deliver the kind of service to our clients uh, that they that they're entitled to, uh, so that they can audit the campaigns and make sure that where they're advertising and what they're putting their money has the um, has the biggest impact and is really going to to true shoppers. Okay, so when it comes to things like data retention and privacy and even content, do you think it's important to create content from within uh, a company for a more authentic brand experience? Or what is the experience of agencies like yours who work with clients from the outside? Yeah, so we we have some a great clients that, that we build these agencies, bespoke in-house agencies for them. Uh, in Ireland, we work very closely with uh, Bank of Ireland or or, or Ritvik, for example. And I think what they appreciate when we what we bring is the point of view of a, of, a, of um, an independent third party. Brands have a tendency to want to say to consumers what the brands want to say, and and sometimes forgetting about what the consumers want to hear. So the advantage of working with uh, an outside um, agency like ourselves uh, and uh, with um, um, you know people who have a, a wider point of view beyond the category in which the client may be, is we can give a, a different point of view to the brands, give them the point of view of what the consumers are looking for, 
giving the point of view of what is working in a particular category and maybe inspiring uh, new behaviors in a particular category by informing uh, brands of some new behaviors or some new practices that are taking place in other categories. So I think there's definitely a desire from uh, brands and organizations uh, to to bring in this external point of view to um, to improve on the message that's being put out there by the brands. Moving to the devices now, Eve, will mobile remain many people's primary device to watch content or is TV still um, an option and what has happened video subscriptions during the pandemic have they accelerated yeah absolutely so if you look at a global level there's no question that mobile is the primary way that most people access the internet uh, especially in developing countries in africa in the, in the indian subcontinent even in china uh, mobile still remains the the number one way that people access uh, the internet but even in the in western countries in the us and in in, in europe I think the younger generation is very much um, um, familiar, or, or, or they're native mobile users. They were born, they were born with a phone in their hands, and it's the first thing that they will go to. Um, I have my kids who, who are teenagers. They will sit in the living room where we have a TV, and the TV is off, but they're looking at their mobile phones and they're looking at their tablets because they're more interactive because they can do the more immersive things using these mobile devices than by using a television uh, in the traditional way. So television is very much of a passive, has been a very passive experience, whereas um, mobile is is a very active experience. And especially if we look at the future, if we talk about, you know, possibilities with, uh, uh, with headgear that might contain um, you know, uh, um, uh, screens like Google Glass or Oculus. I think that, you know, it's just an extension of the mobile capabilities into a device that becomes more of a 360 degree experience. Uh, so, yes, definitely, I think, you know, the, the people's, there has been a, an increase in the subscription of uh, paid services on TV. Uh, because people want to watch movies at home rather than going to a theater. Uh, but th- th- there's nothing that is going to emulate the experience of a, a mobile device uh, on a TV screen at this point in time. Well, it certainly seems that there's a scope for rebalancing when it comes to media investment across those channels. And in that space, there's risk and opportunity for business. And for us as the consumers, we need to be prepared for the accelerating growth of e-commerce and the evolving meta metaverse. OK, we leave it there. Um, Eve Le Breton, who's director of uh, Global Client E-Commerce Inside Ideas Group. Eve, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. We're joined now in studio by Ger McDonough, who's partner in PwC People and Organisation. Ger, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome too. Thanks, man. Now, the pandemic has affected all of us and all aspects of our lives and changed the way that we interact with one another. It's changed the way that we do business. It's caused many of us to reevaluate the very role of work in our lives. The shift in values caused by the pandemic has been called by many the Great Resignation. Now, in September of 2021, PwC commissioned a Global Future of Work skills survey of almost 4,000 business and HR executive leaders. 
The poll surveyed 24 countries and 28 industries. It appears that we are weary, anxious and many people across the globe are resigning from their jobs in record numbers. In the US alone, 20 million people quit their jobs between April and August 2021, according to the Bureau of Labour Statistics. Ger, could you just talk to us about what the key drivers are behind the trends that you're seeing in this global report? I mean, there's a couple of, well, there's a number of sort of key drivers. I think one of the one of the initial things is that a lot of people performed quite very well in terms of productivity, you know, uh, over the last year or so. So, you know, 57% of those sort of surveyed said that the productivity within their organisations was boosted. And, and actually only 4% said that was a negative impact. Um, but that comes at a cost, I think. So whilst productivity has worked um, quite well for organisation, organisations and for individuals, it's come at a cost. It's come at a cost to their mental health, to their well-being. Um, there's some individuals who've been ascribed as being super achievers in that the environment that they've been in has benefited or allowed them to achieve and to do to go over go over and above or beyond the call of duty. Um, but at the same time, what does that mean in terms of, of engagement with employers? What does that mean in terms of trust? What does that mean in terms of culture? What does that mean in terms of leadership? So there's, there's definitely some speed bumps along the way. And I don't think anyone should always should ever measure anything success by virtue of productivity. So there's lots of things that organisations need to do and be wary of in order to, to enable future success. And Ger, is that global trend reflected in Ireland as well? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think what we see in Ireland is very much reflective of, you know, a lot of the organisations in Ireland are, you know, big Irish PLCs, strong proliferation of, of multinational organisations or successful indigenous organisations as well. So I, I think some of the trends that we're seeing on a global basis can be very much reflected locally. I was surprised when I saw those figures, particularly the ones that the OECD had reported, which is that, that despite all of the resignations, there's 110 million fewer jobs worldwide since the pandemic began. So it's sort of counterintuitive. People are resigning and there's less jobs. I think there's a different mix of jobs. Um, so I think that people are wary of, of the fact that, you know, there's a, a very, and particularly in the survey, leaders are very worried about the digitization of work and the digitization of jobs. So you can protect people, you can't protect jobs. Um, so there is a, a recognition that actually certain jobs, you know, may, as they exist now, will not exist in the same way. But also this is, has been a period of inflection for people and mm. um, for people to be able to take, you know, that little bit of time where they might have, you know, might have stopped when they were away on holidays and sort of thought about what they might do. Now they're at home, maybe a little bit more and thinking about is, is this the right thing for us to try and do? Um, and they're quite comfortable. There are, there are still lots of jobs out there. There's still lots of opportunities out there. And maybe individuals are now looking at it and kind of go, well, am I going to do the right thing? Um, and have I got the time and have I got the space and do I want to focus my attention on ensuring that the next job for me is the right job for me? Um, so there, there are still plenty of, of roles and plenty of opportunities within an Irish context and within a global context. But but the shift and the makeup of jobs is, is noticeably different as to what it was a couple of years ago and will be even more different in a couple of years' time. Now, in this report that's due to be released next week, you've identified top, three top challenges that are facing organisations. You say it's it's cost, obviously. It's the lack of leadership capability and organisational culture. How can leaders tackle these problems going forward? I think the first thing for leaders to do is to look at themselves. Okay, so um, obviously cost drivers, you know, speak for themselves and things that you need to try and do. Culture, we'll touch on that in a minute. But but actually leaders now, you know, there's a, I don't know if you come across it, but there's a wonderful PwC um, author called Blair Shepard who talks about the six paradoxes of leadership. And, and leaders of what they were in the past and what they are now, you know, the, the need for vulnerability, the need for not always having all of the answers, for authenticity, um, for being able to, 
you know, to, to hold their hands up and, and to admit to their, their, their fallibility. Historically, that didn't work well as you were a leader. So those leaders are now trying to figure out how they build trust in, in their individual, in their own organisation and how they show um, their own weaknesses. And yet at the same time, in order to doing that, they will build a level of trust. So I think the leadership conundrum is a very active one. You know, Blair will talk about, you know, being a globally minded localist or being a tech savvy humanist, you know, all of those things that make, you know, leadership quite a contradiction. So I don't think any leader is going to master it. But I think what you're looking for leaders to try and do is to be to be honest and to be open, you know, to be transparent and um, to be collegiate, to involve, you know, their employees, their workers in the future destination of the organisation. That engenders support and, you know, will deliver a level of leadership. But I think, yeah, so starting with leadership, you've got to try and, and, and get that right. Um, the cost base, yeah, look, cost, but but you need to be prudent, you know, um, driving for greater levels of a productivity, um, but having, a, you know, the end result being burnout is not necessarily efficient or effective. Um, and culture is probably something that we'll come on to because that's a that's a major topic. Yeah, and let's discuss that because the culture of many companies has had to shift as the pandemic has been extended in terms of what any of us had anticipated at the outset. So what do you think the big cultural changes have been or who do you think maybe have been the types of companies who've mastered this successfully? Um, so I suppose there's a good thing. There's no such thing as a good culture or a bad culture. Okay, so I think that you look to try and accentuate the, the positive aspects of, of your culture. And first of all, to change culture takes time. You know, it's not a mindset; it's a behavioural um, transformation and journey. So, I, I think organisations who have done this very well um, have understood what are those critical few behaviours that they need to, to lock in on. Um, they've been very open. They've been very transparent. Um, they've held leaders to account. You know, they've they've made people sort of say that this these are our values, these are our purpose, and this is our culture, um, and we're very much values led. So there's a transparency there. There's an authenticity there. Um, people talk about an employer value proposition in the same way as you would as a customer value proposition. Um, and employees are very savvy now. If they don't, you know, see people walking the walk as they talk the talk, they'll disengage mm. um, and they'll, they'll vote with their feet and that's probably why you have a great attrition or potentially a great attraction. So I think for those organisations who have who have pushed the culture and done it really, really well, they've been very open, they've been very transparent, they've been very collaborative with their with their colleagues um, and yet they've, and they've offered them the opportunity to shape the future as well. It hasn't always been top down to... to, to to drive the right sort of culture, it needs to permeate right up and down throughout the organisation. Yeah, there is a sense of more control from the employee now, isn't there? A more considered voice for them within the culture of organisations and what that organisation should look like to respond to their needs as opposed to the top-down, maybe, that we've seen in the past. Massively. There's an awful lot more bargaining power, if you want Mm. to use that term, with employees now um, and organisations who don't realise that that power has shifted. Um, well, I, I wouldn't be too hopeful for them in terms of their longevity. So, yes, it's there and you have to embrace it. You, know, mm-hmm. you have to think about ways. How are you going to upskill people? How are you going to, you know, as I said before, you can't protect um, jobs, you can only protect people. So what are you going to do for those people to give them the opportunity to progress so that they don't job hop, they roll hop, they stay within the organisation, they build a wide range version of different sort of skills and allow them to progress and stay within the organisation, within a culture that they're, they're accustomed to but also one that they thrive in and maybe that's one of the unlikely pluses from the pandemic that people value themselves and therefore you know they're demanding more for them from their employers 
Um, and we wouldn't have saw that going into the pandemic, but they they definitely seem to have, you know, there's a there's a shift in, in terms of, you know, how you have to respond to, to employees' needs now, isn't there? Completely. And, and not just for their own individual needs, albeit there's a need for personalisation in relation to some things like reward or things that people, some things don't value. But they want to see greater levels of, of diversity and inclusion. You know, they want, to, they want the organisation to step up to that mark, you know. Um, from a societal good and, and people want to feel good that the organisation they work for have a stellar or really positive reputation that they you know, from a PwC perspective you know, build trust in society and solve important problems unless you do something like that and you have a sense of good or a sense of purpose then it becomes very transactional the work that you do and, and therefore longevity is harder to attain so I, yeah, I think you're right but I, I think what's really great is that now organisations or individuals know that they can actually have an influence yeah. uh, and have a voice um, and that they're ability to shape the future direction of their own jobs or their own world or, or their own organisation is very real. Yeah, the pride in their own brand collectively is hugely important now it Massively. is. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Ger McDonough, partner at PwC, People and Organisations about the Great Resignation. So the nearly 4,000 businesses and HR leaders who responded collectively identified a number of important issues that are important when workforces are planning new strategies. Could you talk us through some of those, please? So I think one of the key aspects of that is is the planning piece. Um, it's very much around about, you know, there's a significant van- advantage to be gained by by planning, looking at the planning dividend. So what does that mean? That's scenario-based modelling. So that's trying to look at your organisation to sort of see, look, what happens if, so what happens if we're going to bring, so let's take a, a manufacturing organisation. What happens if we're going to increase our, our products, our new products from 10 to 20? Uh, what happens if we've got an onset of, of increased regulation? What are we going to do in terms of looking at the uh, new technologies, whether they're going to augment or automate supply chains or a range of other things? So you're looking to try and look at, at what, what those scenarios are going to do. Is business going to go by 20%? Is it going to go by 30%, 50%, minus 10% or flatline? So planning out all of those scenarios and then doing that by way of dynamic planning as well. So that it's not a once and done. So you don't just build five, six, seven or eight sort of scenarios. You model those things and you have levers that you're going to be able to pull them. So if if it looks like regulation is going to be that much more enhanced, then we're going to do something about that. If it looks like that we're going to have the demographics of our workforce are going to shift, you know, we might have a retirement cliff. What's that going to mean on a particular product or on a particular supply chain again within the manufacturing context? So organizations that managed to, to master that over the last 12 months and build that action-based scenario planning were, you know, there's a 30% differential in terms of them being more successful financially than other organizations who haven't done that. So, you know, that ability to nurture talent and to uh, bring people on your journey with you, that's an important aspect of retaining staff, isn't it? I think it's it's hugely uh, important. You want to nurture talent. I think we, we, we talk about things in terms of you know, in relation to talent, whether you're going to buy talent, you're going to borrow, you're going to bounce, you're going to build, you're going to bind, you're going to blend. Okay, so all of those sixes. What does that mean? It means buy talent. Mean that you you still want to bring new talent into your organisation in terms of recruiting new talent, and that's that's important to give you diversity of perspectives and a, and a whole range of other things. To borrow, whether it's other parts of your organisation, so that's internal mobility and lateral sort of thinking about well, can we take somebody from here to there and will benefit us and and them. Uh, bounce, you know, we're just going to take somebody and lift and drop them into into something else. It's it's a bit more considered. It's a bit more considered than that they might sort of stay there. Um, build is awful lot of bed upskilling, and I think uh, the, the key to success. A lot of what we would see from any recent surveys we would have done would be about upskilling individuals, empowering them, lifelong, life wide learning, and getting them to take control of that, but giving them the the credentials to do that. Um, 
you know, a binding if you're going to identify critical skill pools that, that might, you know, that might come to a, a, an end fairly soon, you know, and just trying to go, what do we need to do so something that's really, really critical to retain those skills so they're not going to go away? And Blend is really trying to encapsulate all of that together. So PwC are a huge global company um, and with significant resources and staff, but what advice could you give to maybe small businesses about workforce strategies that they could implement to have a big impact? I think the first thing that you want to try and do is is be open and transparent, is, is have those conversations, put the employee at the centre of, of what your thinking is. Um, invariably, you know, from a PwC per perspective, you know, we, we think about reimagining the possible and often the people who are going to reimagine the possible are not those individuals who are sitting at the top end of the organisation, they're the individuals who are, who are at various different roles in the organisation. So I think, you know, you've got to try and collaborate. Um, mm. For smaller businesses, there's, there's often talk about entrepreneurship, you know, um, and I always think there's a wonderful term about intrapreneurship. How can you get those individuals who are in that business to make it think like it is their own and that they can get come up with ideas or, or, um, or, or at least prototypes or ways to look at how we can differentiate and grow the business. And I think if you trust people ultimately, so you've got to place trust. Anybody who's not placing trust in the individuals and, you know, I think they're really going to struggle. So you're going to need to give them to trust those individuals, give them a level of autonomy, um, support them where appropriate. But but that that should be as important for someone in a in a very small five to ten people SME as it should be for for a PwC or equivalent. Yeah, so you can apply it in the same way, yeah. Ger, in Your assessment and looking at um, this survey are these changes a snapshot in time, or is this a cultural awakening of sorts? Do you think it's really changing the dynamic of work relationships? I think it's really changing the dynamic. Um, I I think. But I, I don't know what's going to happen next either, right? So I don't have a crystal ball. Um, and we would have done numerous surveys in the terms of the future of work. And, and anyone who's in the ability to predict beyond six, 18 months is, is bluffing you, right? Um, there's wonderful futurologists out there. And some of the stuff will happen, but but some of the stuff won't. Um, I, I think it is at a, a very uh, interesting inflection point. I think there's another inflection point when post-COVID, when we get to see what work is like when people have choice, right? Right now, people are... You know, we talk about diversity and diversity of home circumstances that works well for some people, doesn't work well for others. I think it'll be interesting to see when we get back to a society where people have the choice and they can decide whether they want to work at home full time, want to work in the office, what, what, what the real choices are as opposed to being, you know, governed by society or lockdowns or equivalent on a, on a global basis. So I think where we are now has been, a, you know, the greatest experiment ever in relation to work. And I think there's another node to that in terms of once things settle down, hopefully, touch wood, uh, settle down, then what, what's the future work going to look like? I think people will want to work remotely now because it suits them. And I think then individuals might want to come back a little bit more to offices for that sense of, of community, for that sense of, of collaboration. Um, but but so I think there's, there's a few more twists to the tail yet. I don't think it's just this inflection point and going to revert to something and it's going to stay like that. I think it'll, it'll bob and weave. Yeah, so as as people do return to work and we try and get back to some level of, of normality, the economic realities will also play a part in the future workspace, won't they? Yeah, unquestionably. So they're going to have far-reaching sort of economic reality. So when you think about what that means for individuals, you know, coming in a debate with the taxi driver on the way and the, the greatest debaters as you can possibly have in terms of what does it mean for society and him of a certain age and how he's he's trying to retrain you know and, and that you know sense of what, what, what's required in terms of governments and educators you know to be able to build people and give them the skills to, to work for a much longer period than what a national retirement age might might be considered at so I think we need to think as a society in terms of how people get to feel that sense of purpose and that sense of value to work to a longer sort of stage and then people will, will obviously want to work on a 
on a global basis as well. So we will have, you know, immigration, we'll have people leaving this, this island and we'll have people coming to this island to try and want to win work. I want to do, to do work. So I think there's, there's a lot to play for from an economic perspective. For sure is, yeah. So the overall key messages of this report seem to be that talent shortage is going to be a key concern for business leaders going forward and flexibility is certainly from from your perspective, the key to keeping people and keeping talent. So companies really need to review their talent strategies for, for the new normal. This report from PwC should provide much food for thought for both employers and employees. OK, we leave it there, Ger. Thank you very much. That's Ger McDonough, partner, PwC, People and Organisation. Thanks, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We have a bit more time in the podcast, so there are extended conversation with our guests today. And thanks to those guests and to the team of Simon Keane and Ronan Coveney with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and followed by Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day. Taking stock. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland. Driving business success through innovative training and upskilling.